Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. I'm one of those people who enjoys the tremendous blessings of having grown up in the church. And I have a lot of fond memories of the church my family attended in Southern California. Uh, The name of the church was Church on the Hill. And it was located in Norco. And that uh, that church was part of the Reformed Church of America. And here's a picture of that church building. Now, one of my fond memories of going to church here involves the wall that you see on the front of the church. All the yellowish stones that you see are flagstone, and they're grouted into place, and so the grout comes up to the surface of the flagstone, and so it makes a fairly smooth wall. But those dark-colored stones stick out a couple inches. Now, back in the 1970s, I had no idea that rock climbing walls was gonna become a thing in California. But my friends and I had our very own rock climbing wall right at church. And a boy could grab a hold of those brown rocks and get halfway up the wall before a concerned parent would even see them and then run over and demand that they come down. Good memories. But what you can't see in this picture is just to the right of the church, uh, right of this building, is the Sunday school rooms. And I think, um, you know, I had a pretty typical Sunday school experience as a young child. The, the teachers in all my Sunday school classes were women. Uh, sometimes they were young ladies in their late teens and early 20s, or, but most of the time they were moms moms who had volunteered to teach the class that their child was in. Uh, They usually handed out candy in my Sunday school class. Um, Looking back, I don't think the church actually supplied the candy. Uh, I think the teachers purchased the candy themselves because different teachers gave different candy, and a few teachers gave no candy at all. And that was discussed amongst us young people. Uh, we knew which teachers gave what kind of candy, and specifically, we knew which teachers did not give any candy at all, even if we'd never been in their class. I learned all the typical Sunday school songs, along with the accompanying gestures and actions. Uh, We had flannel boards that used colorful cutouts of Jesus and his disciples, and uh, Jonah and the whale, and Noah and the ark, but I don't remember cutouts of Adam and Eve. (laughs) And we also had coloring pages. And I think almost every lesson had a picture of some sort that we can color in with crayons. And I learned a lot from Sunday school. I'm very glad to have been given that experience. Um, But there were were some things I've noticed over the years that uh, I didn't learn in Sunday school what I thought I learned when I was in Sunday school. I thought I had learned the meaning of the Bible stories that we covered in Sunday school, but uh, I later came to realize that what I thought, uh, what I was taught was actually a very simplistic explanation of those uh, Bible stories. And not necessarily to the fault of the teachers, uh, they were dealing with children. 
right? We were young children. We needed uh, simplistic uh, uh, explanations at times. But um, as I grew older, I realized that many of those explanations were deficient in some way or another because um, they were essentially moralistic explanations. Um, we were taught that, you know, I should be brave uh, in the face of giants like David was. And I should trust in the Lord like Noah did. And I should overcome the obstacles that prevent me from seeing Jesus like Zacchaeus did. And I should dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known. The contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal is one of those stories that I thought I knew. I had been told it many times as a youth. And for many years, I thought it was a contest to prove that Jehovah is the true God. Um, Jehovah sent down fire from heaven. Baal didn't. So this proves that Jehovah is the true God. And while that's definitely one of the truths demonstrated in the uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, um, I, I've come to the realization that that's not the best summation of this chapter. That's part of this chapter, but it's not the best summation of the chapter. In other words, the contest on Mount Carmel is one of the things that happens in the chapter, but it's not the essence of what the chapter is about. The essence of the chapter is that God was graciously lifting the judgment that he had brought against his people, the people of Israel. And this is evident from the very first verse in uh, chapter 18. First uh, Kings 18, verse 1. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. Now, to set the context, there had been a severe drought in Israel for three years, over three years. Uh, the drought was the Lord's judgment on Israel's apostasy, particularly under the reign of King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel promoted the worship of the Canaanite deity Baal, uh, which led to widespread idolatry among the Israelites. And the lack of rain and the subsequent drought and famine was a demonstration of God's power over Baal and a call for the Israelites to repent of their sin, to tear down their idols, tear down the high places, and return to the proper worship of Jehovah. So when we read in verse 1 that God is promising to send rain to Israel, we should read this as God graciously promising that he's going to relent of the chastisement that he had brought against Israel for the past three years. And then we look at the end of the chapter as well in verse 40, 45. Uh, now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind and there was a heavy rain. Something that hadn't happened in three and a half years. So this chapter begins with God promising to send rain, and it ends with the fulfillment of that promise. And everything in between is a description of God bringing that promise to fulfillment, or to put it slightly different, everything in this chapter is a description of the people and events God used to lift the burden of chastisement that he had placed upon Israel. 
when we recognize that this, is, that this chapter is about God restoring his covenantal blessings to his covenant people, we see that the contest on Mount Carmel was a means to that end. It was a means to that end. Uh, it was the contest on Mount Carmel that awakened the Israelites to the sinfulness of their idolatry. When Baal could not answer with fire, but Jehovah did, the Israelites were made aware that, of the reality that Jehovah is the one and only true God. And that moment is described in verse 39, when God sent down fire and consumed the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the dust, and licked up the water, which was in a trench, the Israelites fell on their face and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Now that's the Israelites saying this. This is the people who have been worshiping false gods. And the point I want you to see here is that the Lord would not lift his hand of discipline against the Israelites until they acknowledged that Jehovah is God. But even then, even after they so forcefully declared that Jehovah is God, one more thing still needed to happen before God would send rain. Elijah needed to pray. He needed to pray for rain. Now, prayer is a, a puzzling thing uh, to, for many of us. We wonder whether prayer actually accomplishes anything. We wonder whether prayer actually changes anything. Do my prayers make God do something that he wouldn't have done otherwise? If somebody is sick and I neglect to pray for them, does that mean that God won't heal that person? And if I do pray for that person, does that mean that God is somehow uh, obligated to heal that person? Or have I somehow manipulated God to do something that he would not have done otherwise? And what, what does it mean if I pray for a sick person and God does not heal them? How am I supposed to understand that? Many of us try to analyze the cause and effect relationship between our prayers and the things that happen in the world. Uh, ironically, uh, we might be a little skeptical of the effects of prayer, not because we have a low view of God, but because we have a high view of God. Our high view of God tells us that he doesn't depend upon us to compel him to do things. Our high view of God tells us that he doesn't need us to tell him that my neighbor is looking for work or my sister is suffering from a cold or my cousin's marriage is on the rocks. We know that God is fully aware of all of these things. Moreover, we know that these things are all part of God's master plan, the master plan he created from before the foundations of the world were laid. And so we question ourselves, how do my prayers factor into this high view of God that I have? It's not like I'm going to change God's mind about something. It's not as if I'm going to cause him to alter his master plan. So what difference do my prayers make? Won't the same thing happen regardless of whether I pray or not? Take Elijah's prayer as an example. God had explicitly told Elijah back in verse 1 that he is going to send rain. God said it. 
Uh, he explicitly said, go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. We read this and we ask ourselves, after Elijah presented himself to Ahab, what need was there for Elijah to pray to God to send rain? Didn't God already promise that he would send rain? So what's the point of praying about it? Maybe we're asking the wrong question. We want to know whether prayer has a causal influence on the things that happen in the world. So we're always looking for the cause and effect relationship. Uh, in, the, in the case of Elijah's prayer, we look at the chronology in this chapter and we say, God was going to send rain anyway. So Elijah, his, his prayer really didn't have anything to do with it. But that conclusion is not supported in the scriptures. Take the book of James. James tells us in 4.2 that you do not have because you do not ask. He, James, evidently believes that there's a causal relationship between our prayers and God's provision for us. Then again, in James 5.16, he says, uh, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much to Avail much means to accomplish much. So James is saying that when a righteous man prays, it makes a difference. His prayer is going to have an effect and it's going to accomplish things. Then James gives an example of a righteous man whose prayer availed much. And do you know who he uses as an example? Elijah. Listen to what he writes in James 5, 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, one of the points that James is making here is that Elijah was just an ordinary man. Uh, he, he, had, he was a man with a nature like ours, we write, he writes, James writes in verse 17. So we shouldn't think of Elijah as some extraordinary superhuman person that's not on the same category as, uh, as we are. No, he was just like us, or we can say we are just like him. Uh, Elijah was a fallible human person. As 1 Kings 19 demonstrates, he dealt with fear, he dealt with depression, he dealt with hunger, with pain, with weariness, and he had all the same physical, emotional, and spiritual afflictions that you and I deal with in this, in this fallen, sinful world. The point James is making is that this man, with a nature like ours, prayed that it would not rain, and, it, and God stopped the rain. And then he, Elijah, prayed that it would rain and God sent rain. Our theology of prayer needs to account for this. It's clear from even a, a casual reading of the Bible that prayer does actually make an impact on the world around us. So if we're going to take the Bible seriously then we can't deny that God does actually respond when people pray. More examples of this uh, can be seen in the book of Acts. Uh, in Acts 4, 
Peter and John were arrested by the Sanhedrin because they were preaching in the name of Jesus. And after being detained in jail overnight, the Sanhedrin reprimanded them and released them. And immediately, Peter and John went back to the place where their companions were staying and reported everything that happened. And they all got together and they prayed on that occasion. Peter and John come back and it's like, let's pray. And they prayed for boldness to continue faithfully speaking the word of God in spite of the strong opposition that they were facing. And then something remarkable happened. Acts 4, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. God responded to their prayer. The earth literally shook because these Christians had prayed. Remember when the angel delivered Peter from prison in the middle of the night? Peter was sleeping in a cell, chained between two prison guards when the angel appeared and woke him up. Immediately, Peter's chains fell off and the angel escorted him out of the prison, completely undetected by any of the guards. They walked past the first guard post, they walked past the second guard post, then they came to the iron gates that led out to the city, but those gates were closed, and yet miraculously those gates opened up without anybody even touching them and Peter walked through and, and, and once he was in the street the angel departed and Peter quickly ran to John Mark's mother's house because that is where one of the house churches uh, were meeting where the Christians gathered together for, for worship and what did Peter find when he arrived at the house church? Acts twelve twelve says he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Where, where many were gathered together praying. It's not a coincidence, brothers and sisters, that Peter was delivered from prison at the very moment the, the, these Christians were gathered together for prayer. In fact, if we go back to the very beginning of the narrative, back before the angel appeared to Peter in his prison cell, we read that prayer is going to play a special role in Peter's deliverance. Acts 12 verse 5 says, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but earnest prayer was offered to God for him by the church. But earnest prayer was offered to God for Peter by the church. Now, there's no way we can read this and still question whether earnest prayers of the church had anything to do with Peter's miraculous deliverance. The fact that God delivered Peter at the exact same time the church was gathered together for prayer is not and cannot be a coincidence. There is a causal relationship between prayer and God's response of deliverance in Peter's case. Something similar happened to Paul and Silas when they were in prison. Uh, only in their case, it wasn't other people's prayers that delivered them. It was their own prayers. Acts 16 verse 25 tells us that while Paul and Silas were imprisoned in Philippi, they were praying when a great earthquake suddenly sprung the prison doors open. Once again, God responded while his people were praying. In Acts 10, 
It was while Cornelius was praying that an angel appeared before him to tell him that his prayer had been heard. The angel went on to explain to Cornelius that he should send for Peter who's lodging in Simon the Tanner's house in Joppa and Peter will come and share the gospel with Cornelius' entire household. Once again, God responded in direct connection with the prayer. And this isn't just something that happens in the book of Acts. In Genesis 24, Abraham sent Eliezer to a distant land to find a wife for Isaac. When Eliezer got there, he prayed that God would reveal which young lady should be Isaac's wife. And he prayed that the right woman would be the one who offered water to Eliezer and his camels. And when Eliezer was recounting this to Rebekah's family, he said in Genesis 24, verse 45, but before I had finished speaking in my heart, he's referring to his prayer, but before I had finished speaking my heart, there was Rebekah coming out with her pitcher on her shoulder, and she went down to the well and drew water. God responded to Eliezer's prayer while he was praying. And I'll share two more examples of how God responds to prayer, but uh, both of these are from the book of Daniel. And I encourage you to turn there so that you can follow along because I think you're going to want to see this with your own eyes. We're, we're going to begin in Daniel 9. Uh, what's noteworthy about these two examples uh, that we're going to read here from Daniel is how God responds to prayer um, and then man's perception of God's response to prayer, and that these don't necessarily happen at the same time. Let me repeat that, that God, God's response to prayer and man's perception of prayer don't necessarily always happen at the same time. Let me, uh, uh, but, so uh, let's, let's, let's turn to Daniel 9, and let me show you what I mean. Uh, beginning of verse 20, Daniel writes, now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision in the at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked to me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplication, the command went out, and I came to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Okay, so, so two times in these four verses, we read that the angel Gabriel was dispatched to Daniel while Daniel was praying. In fact, at the very beginning of his prayer, it says. The first time is in verse 21, where Daniel says that it was while he was praying that Gabriel was caused to fly swiftly to him. And the second time is in verse 23, where Gabriel says that it was at the beginning of Daniel's supplications that the command was issued from heaven for Gabriel to fly swiftly to appear before Daniel. Okay, so these are both very clear statements that there's a causal connection between Daniel's prayer and Gabriel being dispatched from heaven. Now let's turn one chapter later to chapter 10. The same thing happens in Daniel 10. Only in this case, it took Gabriel three weeks to arrive at Daniel. Gabriel explains this in verses 12 and 13. 
Uh, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the king of Persia. Now, this is uh, giving us a glimpse into the unseen world of spiritual warfare. Gabriel said that he was dispatched from heaven at the time Daniel was praying, but he was detained somewhere along the line by the, the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now, most biblical scholars agree that the prince of the kingdom of Persia is Satan. Uh, so, in some capacity, that is not specified here, Satan was able to hinder Gabriel from reaching Daniel. And it wasn't until the archangel Michael came to Gabriel's assistance that he was able to overcome Satan's opposition and continue to proceed to where Daniel was. But that took 21 days. And this teaches us that there can be a delay between the time God responds to our prayers and the time we perceive God's response to our prayers. As we've seen, there's, there's ample testimony from the scriptures that God often responds to our prayers at the time we're praying. And sometimes, as in the case of Eliezer, Peter and John, and Paul and Silas, God's response is perceived while the person is still praying. Other times, God's response is not perceived until later. In Daniel's case, it took him three weeks to perceive the Lord's response. But the response happened while he was praying. It just wasn't perceived for three weeks later, until three weeks later. And in the case of the house church praying for Peter's imprisonment, it probably took, I'm speculating here, but maybe about 20 minutes before they knew that God had answered their prayers. God did answer at the time that they were praying, but they didn't perceive it. They didn't know it until Peter showed up at the house, which probably took him about 20 minutes to get there. Once again, the response, God's response and the perception of God's response were separated by some measure of time. What do we make of this? How do we apply this to our theology of prayer? Let me share three points of application with you. First, We should pray with the anticipation that God is going to respond at the time we pray. We should pray with the anticipation that God is going to respond at the time we pray. And sometimes we'll perceive his response quite rapidly, and other times we need to be patient before we perceive God's response. But we should pray with the anticipation that God will respond at the time we pray. And if we really believe this, then we're going to be more conscientious about when we pray. For example, sometimes you'll hear Christians ask for prayer at the specific time of whatever their prayer need is, whatever they're requesting prayer for. Uh, Somebody might say, I have a job interview tomorrow at 2 p.m. Or they might say, my surgery is scheduled for Friday at 9 a.m. The time is specified uh, so that other Christians can be interceding for God's grace and mercy upon that person 
at the very time of their need, at the very time that they are being interviewed for the job, or at the very time the surgery is happening. Now, I'll confess that there was a day when I thought that this was bordering on superstition. In my way of thinking, I questioned what the difference was between praying before the person has surgery and praying while the person is having surgery. I would question, uh, do my prayers have a shelf life? Is there an expiration date stamped on my prayers? Does, doesn't the prayer I offer today still have application to the surgery that happens tomorrow? Yes, of, of course. Uh, the prayer offered today still has application for tomorrow. There's no expiration date on prayers. But this is the wrong question to be asking. It's wrong because it assumes the purpose of prayer is to ask God to do certain things. If prayer is merely asking God to do certain things, then yes, I can pray for things in advance and God isn't going to forget what I prayed for. So I can pray today for the job interview that's happening tomorrow. I could pray today for the surgery that's happening on Friday. I could pray today for the meeting that I have scheduled next week. In fact, I could be very efficient with my prayer time. On the first day of every month, I can pray a single prayer for all my friends' employment and medical needs for the entire month. And I can pray a single prayer for all the meetings I'm going to have that month. And I could even pray for the meetings that I don't even know I'm gonna have, the meetings that haven't been scheduled yet. God knows what's gonna happen in the future, right? He doesn't need me to inform him of when I'm gonna schedule a meeting. So on the first day of every month, I can just say one prayer, asking the Lord to bless all my meetings for the next month. In fact, I can do better than that. I can ask God to bless all my meetings for the next six months or for the next year. Why not? I have a high view of God. I know he's omniscient. I don't need to tell him, inform him of anything. And I know he's faithful. He's not gonna forget what I prayed for. So if it doesn't matter when I pray, why can't I just pray for everything all at once and be done with it? If prayer is simply the way I ask God to do things, then yes, I can pre-pray the rest of my life. Uh, but that's not what prayer is, brothers and sisters. Prayer is much more than that, which brings me to the second point of application. Prayer is the activity of living in reliance and dependence upon God. Prayer is the activity of living in reliance and dependence upon God. Now let me be clear, there's absolutely nothing wrong with praying today for something that's gonna happen a week from now. Uh, this is especially true 
if you're feeling any anxiety about the upcoming situation. You should bring your anxiety to God in prayer, and you should be asking for his wisdom or his protection or his comfort or his peace or whatever you stand in need of to continue living in reliance and dependence upon God. So please don't hear me saying that it's wrong to pray for something before it happens. But if you do pray for something in advance, then, and then you never think about it again, as if, okay, got that covered, check, uh, throw the list away, done with that, then it's pretty hard, if this is how you're praying, then it's pretty hard to say that you are relying on God. Why? Because prayer is the activity of relying on God. When you go to him in prayer, you're admitting your reliance and your dependence upon him. You're essentially saying, dear Lord, I need your grace to sustain me. Or I need your love to comfort me. Or I need your mercy to lift me up out of this pit of despair. Or I need your compassion to ease my pain. Even if you're not asking God to do anything for you, even if you're just expressing your adoration for God, prayer is still the activity of relying upon him. When you express your adoration to God, you're essentially saying, I worship you because of who you are. You are the great I am. You're the one who created and sustained all things. Without you, I would be nothing. Without your gracious love, I would be perishing under the penalty of my sin. And even when you're expressing your gratitude to God, prayer is still the activity of relying upon him. You're essentially saying, I'm grateful for everything you've done in the past, for everything you're doing right now, for everything you've promised to do in the future. It's humble dependence. It's reliance upon God. And here's the reality, brothers and sisters. The person who does not pray frequently is the person who doesn't think he frequently needs God's help. Whereas the person who does pray frequently is the person who understands his frequent dependence upon God. Jesus did not teach us to pray for our monthly supply of bread. He taught us to pray for our daily supply of bread. Likewise, Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 34, Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own thing. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And I think Jesus was, I don't think Jesus was saying that it's wrong to pray about things that extend more than 24 hours into the future, but he is impressing upon us the need to live in reliance upon God for the things of today, to focus our, 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 ourselves on today, which if I'm not, or if I am doing this, then I'm going to be praying for God's provision of grace for the things that I'm dealing with today. Like the Israelites who gathered the manna in the wilderness, I'm going to wake up in the morning and pray for the Lord's provision for today, knowing that tomorrow there will be a fresh supply of his gracious provisions for another day. And then the same thing will happen the next day, and the next day, and the next day. This is the activity of living in reliance on God. Prayer is the natural outworking of knowing that we depend upon him. 
if you're depending upon yourself as you go through life, then you'll have little motivation to pray. Why would you pray? You got it all covered. You don't need God for anything. But if you're relying on God to equip you and sustain you as you experience life, then yes, of course, you're going to pray to him. You're going to be expressing your, your needs as well as your adoration and your gratitude to him as he responds to your prayers, answering them according to his benevolent wisdom and his tender mercies. Consider this. Matthew 6 verse 8 says that God knows what we need before we even ask him for it. So part of the mystery of prayer is that we're entering into a conversation with God and he already knows what we're going to ask him and yet he still wants us to ask him. And to add another level of complexity, Romans 8, 26 says that we don't even know what we're supposed to pray for. Uh, But the Holy Spirit knows what we should pray for, so he makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be spoken. The Spirit transforms the the inadequacies of our prayers into petitions that are in full agreement and alignment with God's will. Now, there's no shame in admitting that we cannot fully explain how this works. Uh, You don't need to pretend like there's no mystery here. Uh, Trying to dissect the nuanced intricacies of how prayer works is always going to end in frustration because the supernatural operations of God do not fit on a slide under our our microscope. But we do know what the Bible tells us about the operations of God, and this brings us to the third point of application to our theology of prayer. God doesn't just ordain the ends, but he also ordains the means that he uses to accomplish the end. For example, when God ordained for the tabernacle to be built, he, he equipped certain men with the craftsmanship skills that were necessary to build the tabernacle. And so God worked through the, the means of, of craftsmen uh, to build the tabernacle. Likewise, when God ordained for the Ethiopian eunuch to come to saving faith in Jesus, he put Philip in the right place at the right time and equipped Philip with the words and understanding to share the gospel of Jesus Christ from the book of Isaiah. The prayers of God's people are one of the means that the Lord uses to accomplish his ends. Let me repeat that because this is an important point. You miss this, you miss a significant portion of this sermon. The prayers of God's people are one of the means that the Lord uses to accomplish his ends. In the case of the corrective discipline that God had brought upon the people of Israel, he ordained that Elijah's prayers would serve as a means for stopping the rain. And when God determined to lift his corrective discipline from Israel, he ordained that Elijah's prayers would serve as a means to bring back the rain again, to restore the rain. It's just, it's exactly what James said it is. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the, and, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Elijah's prayers were part of the process that God used to stop the rain and then to start the rain. 
Could God have stopped and started to rain without Elijah's prayers? Absolutely. But according to his perfect wisdom, the Lord ordained that Elijah's prayers would be the means he uses to start and stop the rain. And the Lord does the same thing with us. We have a nature just like Elijah. Elijah had a nature just like us. God ordains our prayers to be the means for accomplishing whatever the Lord is intending to accomplish. Thursday night, just this past Thursday, one of my friends went to the emergency room because of severe abdominal pain. It turned out he had an, an enlarged appendix. Uh, after one hour surgery, he was sent home and the next day, he said that he was feeling terrific. Did God heal my friend? Or did the surgeon heal my friend? You know the answer to this question. God healed my friend through the means of the surgeon. But who's to say that the surgeon was the only means that the Lord used for healing? I happen to know that several other friends of mine were praying at the time the surgery was taking place. Uh, we had a group text message going with updates throughout the night, and several people were, were praying as the updates came out. They were posting that they were praying. Now, what our sermon text is teaching us is that the prayers of God's people are part of the means that the Lord uses for accomplishing his ends. Every person who prayed for my friend Thursday night was a means for that healing it's easy for us to see the surgeon as part of the means for healing. We say, yeah, that's a no-brainer. We get that. God's working through the agency of that surgeon. But the people praying, not quite as obvious. And yet, when we start to unfold what the Bible is telling us about prayer, specifically what our sermon text is showing us about Elijah's prayers, what James tells us about Elijah's prayers, we understand that the people who were praying Thursday night were just as much a part of the means that God was using for bringing healing to my friend as the surgeon was. Just not as obvious to our natural eyes, but our spiritual eyes, once they're opened, we can see that. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So let's pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.